as we open up to Hebrews 12. And I just want to say thanks for being here. I'm so excited we get to gather like this. And, and you know, I, I want to I mention one thing before we get into it. A, a few minutes ago, there was a kid yelling at the top of his lungs during the worship. Did you hear that? I don't know whose kid that was, okay? But, but here's the deal. <laughs> okay, okay, it's mine. We are intentionally creating a space where kids can be passionate, even, even if he might have been showing off for the girls a little bit. I don't know what he was doing. But, but kids can be passionate. They can pursue Christ. And in that, it's going to be awkward sometimes. And, and we're going to have to deal with kids. And that is a gift, right? And so let's just keep that in mind, even when we're like, whose kid is that? And then show the pastor a little grace. Let's read from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, as we continue in our series. Uh, what do you do when you're done? Here's God's word. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We'll stop there and have a seat. And, and like I said, I'm glad we're here today. I'm glad we get to continue in this series. Our series is called Done. I'm done. And, and we're going to remind ourselves of what we talked about last week in just a moment. But today we're, we're building on that. And we're talking about looking at Jesus. Now, I want to set some things up for you by telling you about a time when I was probably about 13, maybe 12, and, and I was uh, heavily involved in sports, and it was that, that age where you want to be, like, the best you can be at sports. In fact, most 12-year-olds at that time, you know, I was thinking, I'm going to be the next Ken Griffey Jr., right? Like, that was my goal in life, and so being a, a baseball player and actually doing track, I wanted to be fast, and so I, I got into racing. In fact, I was talking to some people about some adults racing scene, and that doesn't always turn out so well. But I don't know about you, if you were ever in a race as a kid. I remember being in a race and, and wanting to be faster. And so one day after school, I, I got home and I was like, I'm gonna go for a run. And, and I was in my 12 or 13 year old, not fully developed brain. Just remember that, okay, as you hear the story. I was, I was thinking, I have a great idea on how I can become faster. I'm going to, I'm gonna, I'm gonna monitor the speed of my feet. And so here was my thought. I got out on the road, wide open road, lots of space, and I said, I'm going to look down at my feet, and I'm going to watch how fast they are, and then as I watch how fast they are, I'm going to work to make my feet go faster and then faster, and so I did just this. I got out there on the road, and I, I look ahead, and I, okay, here I go, and I start, start kind of running, and then I start picking up my speed, and then I start looking down, and I start watching as my feet, and I see their pace, and I'm like, I can go faster than that. So I see my feet start to speed up a little bit more. I'm like, I can go faster than that. And I see my feet start to speed up a little bit more. And I'm kind of getting excited because my feet, they're actually moving faster than, bam! How many of you got hit by a parked car before? <laughs> I'm proud to say I've been hit by a parked car. I ran right into that thing. And, uh, you know, the first thing you do is you get up and look and make sure no one's looking, right? Fortunately, no one, there wasn't the cell phone age where everyone's recording everything. And I get up and I guarantee my feet were not moving very fast on that way home. <laughs> As I, I think I might have crawled part of the way home trying to get home because my eyes were not on the right thing. Now you're running. You, you need to have your eyes on the direction you're going, not on your feet. And 
whether they're going fast or not, right? And I share that story because that's exactly what we're going to talk about. As, as Hebrews chapter 12 instructs us, see, your outlook, the direction of your vision, what you are looking at, that is going to determine the outcome in your life. Now, stop right there. This can be a self-help motivational speech with just that phrase. You can go to some get-rich-quick finance guy, and he can, he can say the exact same thing. Your outlook determines your outcome. Yes, okay, I get it. But, but we're not going to stop there. See, the big idea today is your outlook determines your outcome. And so look, and so look at Christ. Look at Christ. This is actually what Hebrews 12 says. It says, looking to Jesus. L looking to Jesus. See, today, I, this is what I want to do. I want to build off of last week. Last week we began, and we said, what do you do when you're done? And we define done as when you are, maybe externally, everything's fine. You have a decent job. You have an okay house. You got, your car's running okay. Everything externally is okay, but internally, you are done. You're, you're tired of your sin and your shame. You're tired of loneliness. You, you feel depressed and overwhelmed. You're unsure if life is worth living. And internally, even though you put the smile on outside, even though you're like, okay, yeah, things are good. Internally, you are done. And that's what we began. We said, here's step one. Step one is, is to, to do the really hard thing. Step one is to, to, to not ignore reality. See, we're really good at letting the check engine light on our engine go for a while until we have to deal with it. We're really good at ignoring the things of the soul and burying them as long as possible. We're really good at putting our head in the sand and doing our best to ignore the things that really are important that we must deal with until it gets to the breaking point. And so we said, if you're done, if you're done, you, you can't ignore reality. We looked at the story of Zacchaeus, a guy who, who I think he was getting close to being done. And, and he came face to face with his reality as someone who was wretched. And he came face to face with the reality of Jesus who freely gives grace. See, last week was really about salvation. It's salvation in Christ and repentance, turning to follow him. And honestly, this entire series is really the same thing. We're going to talk about salvation and repentance and how to walk in that. But, but each week builds upon the previous. And so today we say, okay, okay, if I'm not going to ignore reality, if I'm going to, if I'm going to be honest about where I am, what do I do next? I, mean, I don't want you to acknowledge your reality and then just sit there in the pit of your shame and being overwhelmed with life, what is the next step? The next step is where you look. Out, outlook determines outcome. So let's look at Christ. Now, now to do that, most of us, we, we're pretty good at looking at Christ on Sunday morning. You come on the weekends, we sing about Christ, we, we pray to Christ, we remember Christ, but I've noticed it's really easy during the week to, to kind of allow Christ to be on the periphery, right? He, he's still there. We can kind of see him out of the corner of our eye. But when you're done, that, that doesn't work. I actually don't think that works in life at all. See, today, here's where we're going to start. If you're going to look at Christ, let's look at Christ as the center of your outlook, let, let's put him in the very center. Hebrews 12, verse 2, it says this. It says, looking 
to Christ, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated now, present tense, at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, we use this phrase, looking to Jesus. Now, as I as I thought through this, I, I, I came to the conclusion that this is maybe one of the most churchy things that anyone could say. I mean, don't, don't you hate the, the churchy phrases that are meant to be like a, kind of like a band-aid? Like, let me, let me say something so I don't have to engage very long. Like, oh, you got a problem? Let me say something so I can kind of like scoot away and not have to deal with it. Well, just, just look at Jesus. It sounds kind of churchy, doesn't it? My goal today is to help you realize this is the weightiest, maybe the most substantial phrase that you can consider that if you understand what it means to look to Jesus, it can change your life. Because you know when we say look at Jesus, we're not imagining Jesus is in a chair on the corner of the stage. Okay, hey, here's Jesus. Everybody look at him. What does it actually mean? Let's talk about that. Let's dig in and let's say, what does it mean to look to Jesus? And here's where it starts. If you're going to look to Jesus, you're going to look at his person, who he is. See, look at the person of Jesus Christ. When Hebrews says looking to Jesus, it's instructing you to look at the person of Jesus Christ. Last week, we talked about this some. We talked about how Jesus is a historical figure. There is no historian that argues that. We talked about how Jesus' his crucifixion is a verifiable historical event. People who did not believe in Jesus verified it within history. We even talked briefly about how his, his resurrection had credible witnesses. We have reason to believe that Jesus died and rose. We don't just like pull this out of thin air like a fairy tale. There, there, is, there is solid evidence that leads us to the conclusion that Jesus rose from the dead. And so what does that mean for you if you believe that? That means you look to the person, his actual identity of who he is. And the author of Hebrews describes this. He says, he says that Jesus is the, the founder of your faith. The, the founder of your faith. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith. What is a founder? A founder is someone who begins something. There, there are, in, in our world today, there are founders of different organizations, there are founders of local churches. Jesus is the founder of all of them. But there are founders of local churches. You could say, who founded the school next door, right? Or who founded a certain club? But, but Jesus says he is the founder, the, the author, the originator, the one who got it all started. He is the founder of, of our faith. Theologically speaking, do you realize what this means? This means that you don't wake up one day and decide, you know what? I think I need a little Jesus in my life. You don't wake up one day and say, yep, it's time to clean up my act and start doing this God thing. You realize that before you say anything like that, before you walk into a church, before you start to pray, before any of that happens coming outside of you, that means God, Jesus himself, is actually working internally inside of you, drawing you to know him. You're not the founder of your faith. You're not the originator of your faith. You're not the author of your faith. Jesus is. Let's take that a little bit further. And this is a glorious reality. That means that if you're here today, 
If you are here today, whether you've been believing in Jesus for years or you're here today and you haven't even decided whether you think you believe in him or not, if you are here today, that means this is part of that founding process. Jesus is actually, he's, he's working in you through whatever circumstance you're facing, whether you're here because of hardship, whether you're here because you got a wild hair, whether you're here because a family member is inviting you, if you are here or even watching online, if you're giving your attention in this moment, Jesus is in the process of founding your faith. He's the founder. But it says he's something else also. This is looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter, or the founder and the finisher of your faith. Jesus is the one that's going to finish your faith, faith as well. He, he, is, he is the only one who always completes perfectly the work he begins he is the, the one who finishes it to the very end. I love the fact that Hebrews 12, it, it's coming on the tail end of a chapter that is sometimes called the Hall of Faith. The Hall of Faith is a list of all of these people that lived by faith. Now, it's an amazing chapter, Hebrews 11, because it talks about how some people, they lived by faith and they ended up exalted. They ended up rich and in power with high positions and maybe with every creature comfort you could, you could imagine. They lived by faith. That, that sounds pretty like a pretty good deal. But it also lists out people that weren't exalted. It also lists out people that were executed by faith. They were, they were persecuted. They were chased down. Some were sawn in half. They were, they, were, they were pursued until their life was put out. And you know what? They had the same exact faith as the one who was exalted. You recognize that the finishing of your faith is not you having some earthly victory right here, right now. You are not a successful believer if life works out just fine. You are not a successful believer if you're healthy and wealthy. That is not the measurement of the work of Jesus in your life. Both those who were exalted and those who were executed, they both had their eyes on the real finish line, which is eternity, which is the resurrected body, which is forever in, in glory with Jesus. The founder and the finisher of your faith. I love the way the Apostle Paul puts it in, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul writes this. He says, I am sure of this. <laughs> I'm sure of it. What, what are you sure of today? Paul was sure. He had the guarantee of this. Of what? He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul, Paul says, I have a guarantee for you. I have a guarantee that, that is stronger than anything else you can wrap your hands around. This is the guarantee that the one who began a good work in you, he will finish it at the day of Christ Jesus. I, I, I love this reality. This is the idea that if your life is a story, you like to read stories? We read stories with our kids pretty regularly. Sometimes we'll get into a, a long chapter book. And, and you know, every good story, somewhere in the middle, there's some major drama. The stories we read, uh, the main character, and in, in, in our story, honestly, Jesus is the main character, but we get to be in it. 
In, in, in every good story, the main characters, sometimes they fail horribly. Sometimes the main character betrays the trust of those they love. Sometimes the main character is in a pit, literally having everything in life taken away from them, and their life is in just about the worst condition you can imagine. Maybe that's the chapter of your life right now. If your life is a story, maybe you're right there in those middle chapters where, yes, Jesus started something, and no, it hasn't been finished yet, and you feel like life is, it's hell on earth. You wonder where there's hope. You wonder if there's going to be light at the end of the tunnel. You wonder if anything can ever get better. If you have trusted in Christ, guess what? He guarantees it. The one who began a good work in you We'll see it to completion. When? Right now? Today? At the day of Christ Jesus. At the day when, when he is exalted and he is seen as the one who is King of kings and Lord of lords. At that day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess. He, here's what you do. He, here's what you do. You look at Jesus. What, what does that mean? You remember who he is. You remember he's the founder and the finisher. You look at his person, but, but Hebrews 12 doesn't just cast our eyes on the person of Christ. It says also to look at the, look at the passion of Christ. Look at the passion of Jesus Christ. Now, when you think about passion, maybe you're passionate about CrossFit. Sometimes, I mean, some of you guys know I'm passionate about baseball and softball. Maybe you're passionate about your hobby or your family or a chore, or maybe not a chore. But, but, but if you're passionate, what do you think of when you think of passion? The primary definition, actually, of passion is suffering. Hebrews 12 describes the suffering of Jesus Christ. Here's what it says. It says, looking to Jesus, the, the author or the founder and perfecter of our faith, it says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. This is talking about Jesus' passion. When we talk about his passion, we're talking about that night a few weeks or a week ago, we remembered on Good Friday, that night when Jesus was betrayed. That night when he was, he was arrested and illegally tried. We're talking about the passion of Christ when he was mocked and beaten and lashed out upon. When they grab his beard and rip parts of it out. And then ultimately he, he put, picks that cross up and carries it outside the city limits until he is so beaten and so weakened he can carry it no longer. And so someone carries it up on that lonely hill where they nail him to that very cross and lift that cross up until he breathes his last. This is his passion. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus, he endured the cross what did he endure, though? See, see the cross is, a, is an, a, a tool for execution. The cross is a, a tool of punishment. What was his punishment? He was, he was guiltless. He was innocent. He was, the, the scripture describes him as a spotless lamb. What was it he endured? But all of my sin and all of my shame, all of my 
anger and hate, all of my lust and my lying, all of the times I have done wrong. He, he carried all upon that. He endured all of it, and not just mine, but all of your sin. He endured it. As he carried it to the cross, he despised the shame. This is his passion. When you're done, and you're going to look at Jesus, you don't just look at some figment of your imagination. You look at the one who carried all of your guilt. All of it. This is oftentimes called the gospel. And he wasn't just crucified and buried. He, he was brought to life by the Spirit of God. He was resurrected from the grave so that everyone who believes in him, everyone who believes in him, the entirety of their guilt and shame, it is given to Christ. And the entirety of Christ's perfect life is credited to you. <laughs> Look to Jesus. This isn't a churchy phrase. This is a weighty phrase. Look to his person as the founder and finisher of your faith. Look to his passion as the one who, who made it so you can be forgiven. But, but keep digging into Hebrews 12. It says to look at the prize of Jesus Christ. No, notice that, that phrase, who for the joy set before him. What was this joy but the prize that awaited him? And, and the prize that awaited Jesus, it's, it's almost a mystery because you and I, you and I are blessed by that prize. Through his suffering on that cross, that means his prize in a sense results in you having the greatest gifts ever. Through his suffering, you, you know what God the Father does? He, God the Father has adopted you. He's made you a child of God. Through, through the suffering of his son, Jesus. Through his suffering, part of the prize is God the Father has, has reconciled you. He's made it so there's no longer any tension between you and him. He says, come to me. I'm no longer mad at you. Through his suffering, the God the Father has made it so you can be redeemed. You are no longer a slave to your sin. You, you are right with God. You've been completely brought near. The, the prize of Jesus, it goes to you. It goes to you. You get to experience the prize of Jesus, but the prize of Jesus, it also goes to him. I mentioned it a moment ago. Philippians 2 says that at Jesus' name, every knee will bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. What will they confess? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, Jesus, he shares his prize, but he gets the ultimate prize. The prize for you is the blessing of salvation. The prize for him is the glory as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I mean, I like to picture it like a baseball team. You guys, you knew it's coming, right? You think about World Series. We're a little bit ways away. We'll see how the Mariners do this year. I don't know. But here's the deal. You, you got a baseball team. They get to the World Series, and at the end of the World Series, whatever team has won, they have one player, and that player is known as the MVP, the most valuable player. The entire team has won. The entire team gets the trophy. The entire team gets the glory. But there's one player who they are the most valuable player. In a, in a, in a weak, weak sense, this is exactly what we're talking about when it comes to Jesus and his glory. Because what he has won as the MVP is, the reality is every one of us were disqualified from the game. 
He's the only one that went out on the field. He's the one who carried all the weight. He's the one who did all the work. He's the one who gets all the glory. And then he shares it with him for the joy set before him. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus in his person. Look at Jesus as the founder and the finisher of your faith. Look at Jesus in his passion, enduring the shame of the cross. Look at Jesus and his prize, the salvation for all of us. And here's where Hebrews 12, verse 2 lands. Look at his person. Or, or, I'm sorry, look at his position. Look at the position of Christ. It says he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is, this is the place of ultimate authority. He, he is king of kings and lord of lords. Now he sits at the place of ultimate authority. In fact, Matthew 28, verse 18, we've talked about this recently. Jesus says, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You realize there is no higher authority than Jesus Christ. I mean, we're, we're used to a world with authority. Parents in your home, you have authority. But there's a higher authority. Our country has various levels and branches of authority. We have a president. We have governors. We have legislators. We have the Supreme Court. All of them have some authority. You go to a different country and you're going to have a dictator or a crown king or queen or a prince. You have all sorts of different kinds of authority. But none of them even compare to Jesus Christ who has all authority. In fact, the scripture makes it clear that anyone that has any authority, their authority is authority that's been granted. It's been given to them by, by Jesus. You see, we, we say, look at Jesus. Do you see how this, looking at Jesus, this is not just some churchy Christian phrase that you throw out there. This is not some phrase that if someone says, hey, I'm really struggling with something, you say, oh, hey, look to Jesus, and then you make your escape because he said something churchy. Now you, you can get out of the awkward situation. Look at Jesus. This, this term is full of weight. This term is full of power. This term is full of hope. You see, if that's you, it says, I'm done. If that's you that's tired of whatever's going on inside, if that's you that's looking for hope and you feel like you're at the end of your rope, look at Jesus. That's hard to do, isn't it? I have found that, that we, we have so many other things we, we put our attention at. Instead of looking to Jesus, we, we, we have a host of items that, that draw our attention and that draw our vision See, if you're going to look at Jesus, that means you have to choose to not look at other things. I think these other things, I think it's worth laying them out there. What are the things that we look at instead of looking to Jesus? Hebrews 12 actually identifies some of them. It actually says, this, it says let us lay aside every weight. Well, let's start there. If you look at Jesus, this means, I'm going to step on some toes. Forgive me right now. When you look at Jesus, this means you don't look at your screen. This means you don't look at your screen. When I'm talking about a screen, here's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that phone that some of you guys are on Facebook all right now. I see you. I could see from up here. I know what you're doing. 
This means you, you, you don't go to your computer screen. This means you don't go to your television screen. It says, let us lay aside every weight. I think one of the greatest weights for modern people, for believers even, one of the greatest weights that we carry is our addiction to entertainment and screen time. It, it, it's got us captured. I'm reminded of Psalm 119. It's the psalm we've been reading for our, our call to worship. Verse 37 says, Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Preserve or give me life in your ways. Turn my eyes from worthless things. Think about how the screen plays into your life. Actually, I call it the screen time suck. Because I think the screen time just sucks your life right out of you. And I should say, sucks my life right out of me. I I am not immune to this. But, But let's think about this for a minute. When you, instead of looking to Jesus, when you, instead of looking to Jesus, you find all of your free time, all of your extra energy, it's drawn to your screen. What does it do to a life? Let's just make some observations. I think the first thing it does is it steals your family time. Our screens, they steal our family time. I will confess that there has been times in my life where I've been sitting on the couch on my phone, maybe on Facebook or maybe even reading something, and right next to me, my kid's doing the exact same thing, and and I've had these moments of conviction like, right now, these screens are stealing. They're stealing from us. They're stealing what we could be building together right now because we are just in whatever world we're in. I've had the thought, if someone were to break into my house and try to steal my kid, I would fight tooth and nail against them, and yet my screen is doing exactly that, and I'm just letting it go by. Our screens keep us from building those connections and those bonds between a family. They keep us from building the memories that we're meant to share. They keep us from sharing the values that we should be aiming our children at. It just steals your family time. That's not all it does, though. The screen time, it also, it saps your, your self-reflection. I mean, don't raise your hand, but, but, but honestly, how many of us have gone home from a long day work, and we're just beat, we're tired, and we've got stuff going on inside of us. We, we've got some, maybe some confession or, or some things that are bothering us. Maybe we've seen that we've, we've acted a way we don't like, and we know we need to deal with it, but instead of sitting with the Lord, Instead of going to him in prayer or opening up the word, we just go home and we plop down on that couch and we grab that remote and turn it on. And maybe it's the news, or maybe it's sports, or maybe it's a sitcom show, or maybe it's binging something on Netflix. But but what happens at that moment is it saps any self-reflection. Our screens keep us from asking the big questions of life. Our screens keep us from digging deep into our hearts and saying, what is it that God is doing in me? What is he changing in me? What is God calling me to do? The screen time suck. It steals from our family and it saps any kind of self-reflection. And ultimately, the screen time suck, it sets you up for sin. It sets you up for sin. Because even if you're watching an innocent show, what happens when that commercial comes on? Because 
Because the, the people behind the TV shows and the people behind the commercials and the people behind the ads on Facebook, all of them know that sex sells. All of them know that they can, they can appeal to your materialistic nature. And all of it is just, it's drawing you in. And right now in this moment, you might not be sinning, but you know what it's doing? It's paving the path forward. Saying, he, he, I'm going to lead you right to sin. So, so what do we do? We all just say, let's after church go to Lake Sacagawea, let's throw our phones into the lake. You ever thought about doing that, by the way? I've, I like literally thought, like, what would it be freeing to just not have that at all? Is that what we do? No. We look to Jesus. We look to Jesus and his person. He is the founder and the finisher. Do you realize if you are willing to cast your eyes upon Jesus, you will find him more glorious than anything you will ever find on your screen. There is no movie that will ever be made that compares to the majesty of Jesus Christ. There is no game, World Series, bottom of the ninth, tied up. There is no play in any sport that will ever compare to the glory of King Jesus. If you are willing to turn your eyes from your screen and turn them to Jesus, you will be enamored with who you find him to be. Look to Christ, not your screen. But let's keep going. Look to Christ not your sin. It says looking to Jesus, it says before that, that we're, we, need to, we need to cast aside every weight, and it says, and the sin which so easily clings to us. See, here's what usually happens, is oftentimes if we, we find ourselves in our sin, we, we end up allowing that sin to, to just cling so closely to us. When we do it, sometimes it's the guilt of our sin, I messed up again. What a loser. What's wrong with me? Why can't I overcome this? And we end up giving all of our attention to our sin and our failure instead of giving our attention to our Savior and our Redeemer. Sometimes we do it on purpose. We say, I think that sin's going to please me. I think that sin's going to give me the pleasure or the desire that I'm looking to have met. But, but listen, if you're done, one of the worst things you can ever do is say, I'm going to give 95% of my life to Jesus, but I'm going to hold on to this 5% right here. Because that 5% is at war with you. That 5% wants to destroy you. That 5% will never be content to be 5%. It will only be content when it has achieved its final victory. Romans 8 verse 13 describes it. It says, if you live according to the flesh, your sinful nature, you will die. You'll die. This isn't necessarily even talking about physically, although that's the ultimate consequence. It's talking about dying from the inside out. It's, talk, it's talking about not living in salvation. It says, you will die. It says, but if by the Spirit, you can't do it on your own. This is not be a better person. This is by the Spirit, trusting in Jesus. If by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. Puritan commentator on this verse, he says this. He says it like this. He says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It's a battle. If you're done and you're saying, I am going to turn to Jesus, this means you turn away from your sin. You don't, you don't hold on to a little bit. 
You don't let a little bit cling to you. You don't play the game. This means that you say that I am going to, I'm going to look at Jesus even in my failure, even in my sin, even in my shame. I'm not going to allow that to define me. I'm not going to allow that to own me. I'm going to hold on to Christ. You see, look to Jesus, not your screen. Look to Jesus, not your sin. In fact, instead of looking at your sin, look to Jesus in his passion. Remember that in his death, the power of sin has been broken. In his death, the consequence for your sin has been paid. In his death, you have been washed clean and you've been made new. Don't look at your sin. Look at Jesus. Let's keep going. I'd say also, don't look at, or don't look at your situation either. Look to Christ, not your situation. See, when we're stuck, sometimes this is, this is the kind of language we use. We say things like, you know, life's just so hard right now. I got so many external pressures. Maybe it's a physical health pressure. Maybe it's a financial pressure. Maybe it's a, a relational strain and tension that you have. Maybe it's the spiritual pressure of, of your battle with sin. And we say, it's just so hard. And, and sometimes we'll even say, you know, it's just, it just doesn't feel fair. Or, or we'll start to make excuses or even start to act like a victim. Well, if only this person didn't do this to me. Or if only this didn't happen when I was this age. And what we end up doing is we start focusing on the situation at hand. Our eyes, our attention, our vision, our outlook becomes centralized on here's what I'm going through. Here's what I'm going through. You ever been there? In that moment, if you look to Jesus, in that moment, if you take your attention off of whatever your situation is and you remember who Christ is and the price that he's won, something incredible happens. Let me show you. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Notice how this begins, actually. It says, count it all joy. You remember Hebrews 12? It says, Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. This passage tells you, believer, it says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet, various, or meet trials of various kinds, he says, you, when you face a situation that is full of difficulty, when life is not fair, when life is hard, when you have been a victim, when things are difficult, he says, when you face that situation, he says, count it all joy? Why would you ever do that? He tells you why. He says, here's why you should count your difficulty as something to be joyful over. He says, for you know that the testing of your faith, that's what a trial is, your faith is being tested. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, endurance, perseverance. It, it produces the ability to be strong in difficulty. He says, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, in your situation, you can trust that God is working you can trust that God is changing you. You can trust that God is making you the man or the woman he has called you to be. And so you can not look at your situation, but look at Jesus. Ultimately, I guess what I'm saying is look at Christ, not yourself. 
Look at Christ, not yourself. When we looked at Christ, we looked at his position. We said that he is the ultimate authority. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let me just tell you, this means that no matter what situation, no matter what sin, no matter what shame you find yourself in, no matter what, every one of us have have a clear vision for our next step. Your next step, no matter where you are, is to obey. Jesus is the king. If he says you need to turn away from your sin, that's your next step. If he says you need to count your difficulty as joy, that's your next step. You see, what you're doing in this moment is instead of looking down or instead of looking at yourself or at your sin, you're looking at Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, it says that, we, that command is actually to run with endurance. Run with endurance. That, that means you have to look way far down the road. And you need to keep your eyes all the way down the road at the very end where you see Jesus. Here's what I want you to do today. I want you to see the places in your life where you're running like a half-brained 13-year-old. Where is it in your life where you're running like this? Your eyes are on your sin. Your eyes are on your situation. Your eyes are on your screen. Ultimately, your eyes are on yourself. And and you, you keep wondering why you keep running into parked cars. You keep wondering why you find pain around every corner. Brother or sister in Christ, lift your eyes. Take it off yourself. Look at Jesus. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you today that we can look at your son, Jesus. We can remember his person, that he is the founder and the finisher of our faith. Thank you that the work has been completed by him. Lord, Lord, I pray that you would, you would lift our eyes to Jesus on the cross. Help us to remember the price that he paid for each of us. God, for, for those who are struggling with shame and guilt, God, I pray in this moment they would remember their guilt has been removed. Their shame has been washed away. Their sin has been forgiven. God, I pray that by your Spirit, you would lift our eyes. Lift our eyes to the end of the road, to eternity, to the glory that we will share forever with Jesus Christ, where where these these present trials and troubles, they, they will seem as small and weak compared to the strength of glory that we, we have forever. God, ultimately, I pray that you would you, you would lift our eyes to Jesus in his place of authority. Lord, help us to stop making excuses for our sin. Instead, help us to, to fully repent and turn toward Christ. Help each of us today to look to Jesus. It's his name, in his name we pray. Amen.